at your Bibles and turn in them in the New Testament to the book of 1 Thessalonians and chapter number 4. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one under the chair in front of you, and you could turn to page 160 in the back of that, and you would find yourself at 1 Thessalonians. Now, most of you are aware that we interrupted our study of 1 Thessalonians for our very important Pass It On series as we talked about lighting the way for the next generation and the next spiritual adventure that Wildwood is going to be involved in. And uh, so we want to return to our study of 1 Thessalonians. And by the way, if you weren't here uh, for the beginning of that, we do have an outline that's available on the information table out in the hallway that you can pick up. But we've talked about how 1 Thessalonians is a book about keeping spiritually straight in a crooked world. And uh, it basically divides into two sections. You have chapters 1 to 3 where there are some important reminders that Paul gives to us. And then in chapters 4 and 5 there are some essential priorities. And just to remind all of us of where we were, when we were looking at those essential priorities we saw that they were, first of all, sexual purity in verses 1 to 8. Another essential priority was excelling in love and the way that we operate in verses 9 and 10. And then living responsibly is an essential priority for a believer and a follower in Jesus Christ. And we saw that in verses 11 and 12. And we broke right there. And we are now coming uh, in the book of 1 Thessalonians to the prophetic portion, which is dealing with future prophetic events. If you'll notice in chapter 4, Verse 15, he says, We say to you by the word of the Lord that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven. So he's going to get into the subject matter that Jesus will return. And then if you look at chapter 5, verses 2 and 3, he says, For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord, this day of judgment, time of judgment that's coming, will come like a thief in the night. And while they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. And he's going to get into the area here that judgment will come. But before we actually get into the details of the last half of chapter 4 and the first part of chapter 5, I want us to take an excursus. That's the word for Mother's Day today. The word excursus. So I want you to learn the word excursus. It's the new word for the week. And you're going to be able to tell all your friends, I understand this word because we talked about it a while when on Sunday morning. And you're going, what in the world is an excursus? Well, you have heard the word excursion. You go on an excursion, and that's really what an excursus is. It's a, it's a short journey. And before we get into the details of chapter 4 and chapter 5, I want us to go on a short journey. Uh, to position us to better understand what is being said in chapter 4 and chapter 5. And so what I want to talk about is some perspective on prophecy. In fact, that's the title of today's message, Perspective on Prophecy, part number 1. Now, for many people today, inside the Christian community, it seems that future prophetic events are very confusing I mean, after all, there are a lot of views about future prophetic events inside the church. 
You have the premillennial position. You have the amillennial position. You have the postmillennial position. You have the pre-tribulational position, the mid-tribulational position, the pre-wrath position, and the post-tribulational position. And you have all of those things being talked about. And what happens to many believers is they think, I don't know, prophecy, it's just too difficult to understand. And so many would default to what I like to call the pan-millennial position. The pan-millennial position goes, I don't know what's going to happen, but it'll all pan out in the end somehow. Um, the idea seems to be, that it's, it's growing in popularity. I've watched this happen over the decades. seems to be pretty much a why bother with talking about prophecy perspective. And I think there's several reasons why we need to bother to talk about it. For one, the Apostle Paul thought it was very important. In fact, you'll notice in chapter 4, verse 13, he says, I do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters. You need to know about future prophetic events. And then you'll notice, he says to them in chapter 5, verse 1, Now as to the times and the epics of all these future events, you have no need of anything to be written to you. What's he saying there? Hey, remember when I was with you, I took you through prophetic events. I did, I did a lot of teaching on that subject matter with you, and in terms of the basic understanding of it, I don't even need to write to you about that. I'm going to write about some clarification on some things. But in other words, he schooled them on prophetic events as new believers in Jesus Christ. This is the third earliest New Testament letter we have. And in it, he refers back to the fact that he already talked to them about prophetic events. In fact, when he writes a second letter to them, which is 2 Thessalonians, chapters 1 and 2 are just almost all prophetic events, future prophetic events. So why do we bother with this? Because the Apostle Paul thought it was important, important that we understand it. There's another basic reason why I think we ought to bother with getting a perspective on prophecy, and that is that large sections of the Bible are devoted to it. Someone has calculated that there are 1,845 Old Testament references to the second coming of Christ. I mean, you know, approaching 2,000 of them in the Old Testament. And there are 260 chapters in the New Testament that address the issue of the second coming and future events. Now, that's a lot of chapters in the New Testament. What is really interesting to me is that for every prophecy we have in the Bible about the first coming of Christ to come and to die in our place, there are eight times more prophecies in the Bible about His second coming. Now I want you to know that there are some inside the church of Jesus Christ, and they're good people, who believe in something called preterism. Preterism. What do we mean by that? Well, those who believe in preterism would say this, that most of the prophecy we see in the New Testament, some of them would say all of the prophecy we see in the New Testament, was fulfilled already. It was fulfilled in 70 A.D. when the Roman Empire swept down into Jerusalem and destroyed Jerusalem and sent the last of Israel out to be scattered out into the world. There are some in the church who say that most, if not all, of what we see 
has already been fulfilled. Now, while they're good people, I just have to say to you that I, I find that a very difficult position to defend. I, I just want to show you a couple of things. Turn with me to, to Matthew chapter number 24 in the New Testament. Matthew 24. As we try to gain some perspective on prophecy, to say that these things have already been fulfilled, I think, is a rather difficult thing to defend. Now, if you'll notice in Matthew chapter 24, look at verse 29. We're just jumping into the middle of all kinds of events that are described that are future at the time that Matthew is being written. But it says, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory and he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet and they will gather together his elect from the four winds and from one end of the sky to another. This is kind of difficult. There's no events that we have that even come close to describing something like being described here in Matthew 24. To say that this kind of stuff has already happened is difficult to defend. You can just jot down the book of the Revelation from chapter 4 to chapter 18. And some would say, well, all those events have already happened. It's just pretty difficult to defend. I'll just give you some of the things that it's described in there. For example, in chapter 6 of Revelation, verse 8, it says that one quarter of the earth's population will be killed at one moment. In chapter 8, verse 7, it says that one third of the entire earth will be burned up at one given moment. In chapter 8, verse 9, it says that one third of all of the sea life will be killed at one moment. And then in chapter 8, verses 10 to 11, it says that one-third of all of the fresh water on the planet is going to be poisoned. It's just difficult, as you look back at what we know of history, to say all of that has been fulfilled. I don't believe that it has. Now, I do want you to, to look in Matthew chapter 24. I want you to look. Here's part of the confusion that we have, I think, over this in, in interpretation. is in verse 3 of chapter 24. This is sort of the setup for, for chapter 24. Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives and the disciples came to him privately. Jesus, we got a couple of questions we need to ask you. Tell us, when will these things happen? Now, if you look at the previous verse, what Jesus was telling to them basically is that the temple is going to be torn down. And Jerusalem, Jerusalem is going to be overrun. And they basically ask him in this private time two questions. When are these things going to happen? When is Jerusalem going to be overrun? Question number one. Question number two, what will be the sign of your coming the second time and the end of the age? And so you see there are two questions that are asked. Now the answer to the first question, when is Jerusalem going to be overrun, is not actually recorded by Matthew. It's recorded in Luke chapter 21 verses 20 to 24. If you want to go look at that later, you can see that. But he answers the first question. And he predicts how the Roman Empire was going to come and destroy them. But what Jesus does really answer, what Matthew records of Jesus' answer, is the second question, and that is, what are going to be the signs of your coming and the end of the age? And in chapter 24, verses 4 and following, he 
gives the answers to that, the signs of his coming and the end of the age. And I want you to look in uh, chapter 24 at verse 32 for a moment. As he gives a lot of these signs of his coming in the end of the age, here's what he says to them. I want you to learn the parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. In other words, as the tree begins to bloom, if you just sort of dropped in from a coma and you walked out and you saw trees blooming, you would be able to say, aha, summer is coming. And he says, so you too, when you see all these things, these signs that I've been unpacking, recognize that he is near right at the door. So in other words, here's the idea. Jesus says, there will be some signs that you have been given. And when you see the signs, you know that my coming and the end of the age is near. Signs indicate nearness. Now, we could, we could spend months talking about all of the signs of the return of Christ and the end of the age that we have in the Bible. But we're on an excursus, just a short journey. And I just want to talk about and isolate four signs as we are on our little excursus before we get back into 1 Thessalonians. And I'm going to touch on three of them today, and then I'm headed off to a family life marriage conference, and then we will touch on the fourth after that. But let's look at them. Just not, not necessarily the most significant ones, but four that I want to isolate of signs of the coming of Christ in the end of the age. And the first sign is the return of Israel. The return of Israel. Now, if you are, are younger, that statement may seem rather unremarkable to you. You say, the return of Israel? What do you mean the return of Israel? I mean, all of my life there's been Israel and Israel. Doesn't mean anything to me for you to talk about the return of Israel. But in the scheme of a sign that would show his return is near, it's a very significant sign. And just a little bit of history and background. In 722 B.C., the northern kingdom of Israel was overtaken, and the ten tribes, ten of the twelve, were scattered throughout the world in 722 B.C. In 586 B.C., the Babylonian Empire came in and took over the southern kingdom of Judah, and two tribes, the remaining two tribes, were scattered out. Now, some of them came back, of those two tribes, some of them came back to Israel, and they were the people that were in Israel in Jesus' day. But even as they came back, Israel was under foreign control. And then, as we stated, in 70 A.D., the Romans came and destroyed Jerusalem, and the remnant of Israel that had been there, the two tribes subgroup that had come back, were scattered out among the whole, whole entire world. That's happened in 70 A.D. That went on all the way till 1948, where in 1948, Israel became a nation. And yet they didn't even have the city of Jerusalem. It was in 1967, outnumbered 80 to 1, that Israel was able to retake the city of Jerusalem. Now, why is that a significant sign? 
because for the first time in 2,500 years, Israel was back and had sovereign control of their nation. Men and women, that's 25 centuries. Now, the reason why that is important is this, that Israel as a nation and Jerusalem as a focused city and a temple being rebuilt in Jerusalem are all part of the era of the second coming. You understand what I'm saying? In the time in which Jesus is going to come back, Israel will be a nation, they will have Jerusalem, and a temple is going to be rebuilt there. You've got to have all of that, and that becomes a sign of the nearness of Jesus' return. Now, I want you to turn to the book of Daniel in the Old Testament. It's a great, great book in the Old Testament. And uh, if you find Ezekiel, you'll know that Daniel is hiding behind that. It's sort of the Mr. Ed of the Old Testament, Ezekiel, and then you have Daniel. Those of you who are older and remember Mr. Ed. But in particular, I want to show you a passage of Scripture found in Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 to 27. And this has long been recognized over multiple generations as the crown jewel or a crown jewel passage in the Old Testament of Old Testament prophecy. In fact, Sir Isaac Newton, who lived in the latter part of the 1600s and into the early part of the 1700s, said this, we could stake the truth of Christianity on this prophecy alone. That's quite a statement to make. This prophecy, Isaac Newton said, you could put the entire truth of Christianity and prove it based on this prophecy alone. Now, let me, before we look at, at these verses for just a few moments in, in 24 to 27, you understand what we're doing here. We're trying to get a perspective of all of this. We're trying to look at some of the signs, and the return of Israel is a sign of the coming of Christ in the end of the age. But I want you to notice in chapter 9, verse 2, this is just a little bit of the background. It says, in the first year of the reign of Darius, I, Daniel, observed in the books, the scriptures, the number of years which was revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet for the completion of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. In other words, he was studying the Bible, and he realized as they had been taken away in captivity that this was going to last for 70 years before a remnant would be allowed to come back. So what's his response? So I gave my attention to the Lord God to seek him by prayer and supplication with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. And basically what he says to God is, what is the future of Israel? Is there a future for Israel? I mean, ten tribes have long been gone for a couple of hundred years. Now, two tribes are scattered out. What is the future of Israel? And God's answer to that is chapter 9, verses 24 to 27. And let's just look at what it says there. Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people in your holy city, verse 24, to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be 
seven weeks and 62 weeks. Some versions will say seven sevens and 62 sevens. It will be built again with plaza and moat even in times of distress. Then after the 62 weeks or sevens, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. And its end will come with a flood even to the end that there will be war and desolations are determined. And he will make a firm covenant with the many for one period of seven. But in the middle of the seven, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. Now, let's just go back and look at that for a moment. It says, when you talk about the future of Israel, 70 weeks are given. Literally, it's 70 sevens. The word that's translated weeks in the New American Standard, I think sevens in the NIV, just means a unit of seven. It's just like our word dozen. When you hear the word dozen, you know it's talking about 12. When you hear this word in Hebrew, it means seven. And the context, if you go back and read this whole context, it's talking about years. And so when you have... Seventy-sevens of years, you have 490 years. And I want you to understand what he's saying here. He's saying, as he says, what is the future of Israel? He says, 490 years have been given, he's speaking to Daniel, for your people and your city. Now, who would be your people? Israel. Your city, Jerusalem. 490 years have been given to your people and your city until some things happen. Until there's the bringing in of everlasting righteousness and the prophecy and vision are going to be sealed up. In other words, 490 years till Messiah returns and sets his kingdom up on the planet. It's a pretty amazing statement that is given to him. 490 years have been given for the future of Israel until Messiah comes and sets up his kingdom. 490 years. Now, this is awesomely exciting, what we want to look at here in just a moment. What, what I want you to see is something that's very, very important. And you might get out the little insert that was in your bulletin called Daniel's Prediction Concerning Messiah. Now, I want you to know something that's fascinating. Sir Robert Anderson, in 1881, did a lot of tracking of this prediction with the reign of Artaxerxes. By the way, Sir Robert Anderson was the chief of the Criminal Investigations Unit at Scotland Yard. Sir Robert Anderson was a guy who knew something about investigation. And then Dr. Harold Honer, some 35 years ago, uh, did some adjustment on the dates because of more recent information that Sir Robert Anderson didn't have available to him. And what you have is a summary of all of this calculation, which remember, the truth of Christianity could be proved by this prophecy alone. And so what you have is, from the decree to restore Jerusalem, which came, by the way, in March the 5th, 444 B.C. by Artaxerxes, then you'll notice, till Messiah the Prince shows up, would be 69 of these seven units of years. And I just, all those things that are in the boxes are just trying to show you it's the same amount of days, but you have to, to work through things a little differently because in the Old Testament, they operated by a prophetic Jewish lunar year of 360 days. 
we operate by a solar year, which uh, basically uh, has more days in it, but it all comes out the same. So don't get flustered by all of that. I just want you to know that you have to make some adjustments from the way that you lay out the years based upon the year that was calculated. Because, see, we operate by 365.242 days a year. That's why we have a leap year every four years. But they didn't operate that way. Here's the point I want you to see, that this prediction came to Daniel in the 6th century B.C. And it basically said this amount of time is going to happen until Messiah the Prince shows up. And to the very day on March 30, 33 A.D. is the day that Jesus got on a donkey and had a triumphal entry into Jerusalem. You see what that's saying? Basically, the prediction is the day that you begin to see Messiah come is going to be exactly this day, and that's exactly the way that it turned out, which tells us a lot. It tells us a lot about the accuracy of God's Word. It tells us a lot about how God is providently, uh, providentially in charge of history, and it also tells us about the importance of respecting the words of prophecy. We need to respect what these words tell us. Now here's what I want you to notice. It's very, very important. In verse 26 it says, between that 69th period of seven years and the 70th period of seven years, it says the Messiah will be cut off. What does that mean? Well, if you know the idiom of the day, it means Messiah is going to be killed. And then it says after that, between the 69th period of seven, or in other words, after 483 years, and then the last seven years, the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the temple. That's talking about the Romans coming in in 70 A.D. and wiping out Jerusalem. But here's what I want you to see. There is a gap, a historical gap that occurs between verse 26 and verse 27. In other words, you, you understand here, if you go back and study this, you'll see. He says, there's, you want to know the future of Israel? 490 years until the kingdom gets set up on the earth. After 483, Messiah is going to show up. He's going to be cut off and the city of Jerusalem will be destroyed. But that leaves seven years left for the nation of Israel and Messiah coming to set up the kingdom. And so those final seven years that were decreed for Israel still have to be played out before Messiah comes and sets up his kingdom. And we learn that the start of those seven years, if you look at verse 27, that seven year, final seven-year countdown begins when the prince who is to come, which is a reference to the Antichrist who would rule the world one day, makes a peace treaty with Israel. That starts the final seven years counting down. And at the midpoint of that seven-year period, the Antichrist is going to set himself up as God in the temple and stop the sacrifices. And at that point, there's going to be a period of unprecedented persecution and judgment that will occur in the final three and a half years of the final seven years before Messiah returns to set up his kingdom. And by the way, that's what that 
last box on the bottom on the right is all about. It's trying to connect this final three and a half year period with the descriptions that we see in the book of the Revelation. Now the point of all of that is simply this. Little perspective, signs let us know that the end is near and His coming is near. The first sign is the return of Israel. And men and women, for those of us who are a little bit older, that has happened in my lifetime. In my lifetime. After 25 centuries. It's very significant. Second sign. Second sign we want to look at is the revived Roman Empire. The revived Roman Empire. Turn with me to Daniel chapter 2. We're not going to spend a lot of time. I hope you realize I'm skating over the top of this, all right? Trying to give you as much information without going in down, into too much detail as we can. But what happens in Daniel chapter 2 is that there is a vision that was given to King Nebuchadnezzar. We see it in verses 31 to 35. And, and he saw this vision of the statue in verses 31 to 35. So you have this statue that appears in the dream. And then we have the interpretation of that given by Daniel to Nebuchadnezzar in verses 36 to 45. And what it is, is it's a vision about the worldwide kingdoms that would exist. And basically, as you, as you look at that, you have in that whole vision of the statue... There is a head of gold that stands for Babylon, a worldwide empire from 605 to 539 B.C. And then you have the second worldwide kingdom, which was Medo-Persia from 539 to 331 B.C. That's the silver on the statue, and that's the era, by the way, that Daniel was first living in. And then you have Greece, which was bronze, uh, right over the, the uh, sort of waist and hip portion of the, the statue. And that was 331 to 146 B.C. And then you had Rome as the final world empire, worldwide kingdom, from 146 to 476 A.D. And, and that part of the statue was iron. And then you had a final phase, we might call it Rome phase two, which was the feet and the ten toes. A second phase of Rome, which could very well be right now. Now here's what I want you to see. If you can go back and you can read this, but as you read about the dream, what happens is, is after you, this whole statue is there, a stone comes from heaven, and it's interesting, it strikes the statue on the feet, very important. And the stone is a symbol of the coming of the kingdom of God to this planet. It's the arrival of the Messiah. And that's going to be the last worldwide kingdom that we will see will be the kingdom of the Messiah. But it hits the statue in the feet because that's the phase, you see, that will exist when the Messiah returns. And so here's the idea. When you begin to look at the prophetic scriptures, people have realized for multiple centuries, they have said, What's got to happen is that the Roman Empire would reformulate in some way in the time in the era when Jesus would return and it would be the end of the age. The people of the prince who is to come would reformulate. 
The prince who is to come is the Antichrist. The people who destroyed it in 70 AD were the Romans. There's going to be a reformulation is the idea. And you have to understand something. When, when prophetic students would look at that and say that the Bible clearly teaches that somehow the Roman Empire is going to come back again just before Christ comes back, they would look around and go, but how? It says that, but how could that possibly be? Incredible skepticism. I mean, how is Europe ever going to consolidate? I mean, you look at what's happened. I mean, they fought world wars more than once against themselves in Europe. And many people have said over generations, it's unthinkable that Europe could ever come together. But guess what? <laughs> it has. And it really began in 1957 with the signing of the Charter of the Treaty of Rome. Those of you know, even, even since we've been going to Latvia, beginning in 1990, in 1992 you had the formation of the European Economic Union, the EEU. It's gone on from there. We've seen Germany give up their currency, the Deutschmark. We've seen France give up their currency. In fact, most of the nations in the European Union are on the euro. They have their own currency. I don't know if you know it or not, but they, they have a, a, a European government fully set up now. You have the European Commission, which is the executive branch that operates the day-to-day -day operations of the European Union. You have the European Council and the European Parliament that are the legislative branches. You have the European Court of Justice. You have the European Central Blank, uh, Bank. And, of course, you have an EU flag over a Europe that is coming together again. Now, one of the things that uh, Bible students have seen when you have the ten toes, it's been, it's been a little unsure. What do the ten toes symbolize? Uh, for many years we, we sort of guessed that they may mean ten nations of Europe or the Roman Empire would come back together. Don't, I don't really know exactly what the significance of the ten is. Maybe there's going to be some reconfiguration. We have like 27 nations, I think, maybe now in the European Union. Maybe that's going to change. Maybe some are going to pull out. or I don't know how it's all going to work, but I do know this, that Europe had to come back together as a sign of Jesus' return in the end of the age. By the way, something interesting happened. In 1999, they talked about putting together the ERRF. I don't know if you've heard about that or not, but it's the European Rapid Reaction Force. In other words, it's the first time the European Union says, we need our own army. Separate from NATO, we want our own army. So in 99, they began talking about that. It was really interesting. This is the way things ebb and flow a lot of times with prophetic events. But in September of 07, in the International Herald Tribune, uh, they basically said, I don't know, we're going to have to postpone the ERRF because we're having trouble getting it to come together, you know, getting people to really commit the troops to it. But I thought it was interesting, just days ago from today, the German foreign minister said, we need to accelerate efforts to get this military force in place. He said, let's get it done by 2009. So by 2009, Europe could have their own army you see where this is going? I mean, you end up with a consolidated nation, ultimately. And the revived Roman Empire is going to be led by the Antichrist.
I can't even believe what's happened since we first went to Latvia in 1990. It's unreal what has occurred. So the first sign of his return in the end of the age is the return of Israel. Very significant. The second sign is revived Roman Empire. There's a third sign I want to talk about very briefly. Remember, these are just some of the signs. And that is the rise of globalism. The rise of globalism. Why is that important? What do we mean by globalism? The idea is, is that we are coming together as a world. The reason why that is so vital and such a vital sign is because of the events that happen right around the return of Christ. The Antichrist is going to be a world ruler, the Bible tells us. And you can just jot down the passage in Revelation chapter 13, verses 7 and 8. It says that the Antichrist will have authority over every tribe, every people, every language, and every nation. Eventually he's going to get there. He will be a true world leader. In fact, in Revelation 13 and verse 17, it says that the Antichrist is going to be able to control what every person buys and sells. Now, by the way, that always used to puzzle prophecy students until we got into the entire electronic banking thing, and suddenly you can see how that would work. If someone decides that my bank card is not going to work, what am I going to do about it? But see, he's going to control what everybody, everybody in the world buys and sells. He's going to be a worldwide leader. By the way, um, you could just jot down the passage and go look at it later, but 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 gives a lot more information about the Antichrist. But globalism is a sign of his return in the end of the age because it begins to mean that the world is very agreeable to the idea of allowing someone who is dynamic to take over leadership of the world. And so what do you see going on right now in our culture? Well, people will start talking about the global age, the global community. There are talk I don't know if you've gotten to reading, they are talking about how we need to move towards a new world order. We need to have a one world government. You know, that's our problem is government. If we just had one government, if we just had a single economic system, if we just had a unified religious system, think of all the conflict that would go away. And if you don't think that isn't being broadcast, a very, very active level, you're missing what's going on. In fact, I don't know if you know it or not, but there's already an incredible push going on for what they call global education in our schools. Now, this, this, this quote is going to shock you a little bit, but here's a quote from Dr. Pierce of Harvard University, and he is speaking to educators in Denver. Now, I just want you to understand all this, okay? This is one of the signs of the coming of Christ at the end of the age, the rise of globalism. This is what Dr. Pierce said to educators in Denver. Every child in America who enters schools at the age of five is mentally ill. They are mentally ill because he comes to school with allegiance toward our elected officials, allegiance toward our founding fathers, 
allegiance toward our institutions, allegiance toward the preservation of this form of government. See what he's saying? If we are focused on being Americans, we are mentally ill because the answer is world government. The answer is everything being unified economically. The answer is everything being unified politically. The answer is everything being utilized religiously. If you go back and you just study world history, you study biblical history, I want you to know this whole movement towards world government and globalism is the strongest it has ever been right now since the days of the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11. Now, if you just understand things, men and women, the significance of that. <laughs> Genesis 11, when they tried to bring the whole world together, together that happened in 2000 B.C., 4,000 years ago. And we see a push for globalism now that's the highest it has ever been in human history since 4,000 years ago, and we're seeing it right now. It's incredible stuff. Incredible stuff. The Bible teaches us there are some signs that He is near, that His second coming is near, and the end of the age is near. Now, does that tell us exactly when things are going to take place? No. I always like to liken it to the setting of a stage. You know a play is about to begin when the set is all in place. And we're beginning to see these signs in our lifetime, in the last few decades especially, getting very much in place. Now we talked about, I wanted to isolate four. We've talked about three. There's a fourth one that we want to look at. And that is the sign of a northern coalition of specific nations against the nation of Israel is a sign that Christ's second coming is near and the end of the age is near. We're going to talk about that sign in two weeks. And we're also going to address the question of, is the United States seen in biblical prophecy? Do we see the United States mentioned? Because we're going to see a lot of specific nations mentioned. And is the United States mentioned? And if not, why not? We're going to take a look at that. But here's what I want us to do. Okay, we've looked at a lot of data. And some of it might make us a little bit nervous as we look at it. But I want to talk about some life response I believe that God would have us to have as we look at some perspective on prophecy. The first one is this. We need to remember that God is large and in charge, okay? He is not off on, vo uh, on vacation someplace, and He doesn't really know what's going on on the planet. <laughs> no, He has His hand on history. He is the sovereign king, and he is accomplishing his plan that he laid out from the very beginning. I want you to turn in the middle of your Bible to Psalm chapter 2, because this is an important reminder that God is large and in charge. Look at Psalm chapter 2. Psalm 2.
Uh, we'll just look at verse 1. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us tear the fetters apart. Let us cast away their cords from us. In other words, you know, you have the nations of the world saying, We're going to take over. We're going to rule. We're going to rip ourselves away from God. What is God's response to that? I've always loved this. He who sits in the heavens laughs. <laughs> you know, I have to be worried about what the world's nations are doing. Are you kidding me? The Lord scoffs at them, and then he will speak to them in his anger, and he will terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king. Listen, I'm the one who's in charge, and I'm going to put my Messiah down on the planet. I don't care how many of you want to fight me on the deal. I'm going to accomplish what I am going to accomplish. I'm going to get it done. I am large and in charge. What it means, men and women, is as we see these signs coming, it means our God is God. And so there's no need for us to panic, okay? Please don't have that response. The second life response I think we need to have is that we need to not only remember that God is large and in charge, but we need to avoid extremes. We need to avoid extremes. One extreme would be just sort of a life-as-usual type of extreme. This is where we just go on like nothing's going to happen. Where we become sort of entangled and strangled by the things of the world. And all I'm thinking about is, is this and that and getting this and that and, and traveling here. I mean, that's all we're entangled with. That's just sort of the life-as-usual. Listen, that's that's an extreme. It's not always going to go on life as usual. It's not. And another extreme we sometimes see in the Christian community is, is the, what I like to call the withdraw and wait one. That is, okay, the world is going to go to hell in a handbasket. What I need to do is get away from them. I mean, they're moving towards globalism. Let's go over here. Let's buy 50 acres and let's Stay away from everybody, and we'll just kind of sit back and wait for the Lord to come back. He's going to zap everybody. That's an extreme that we are not called to at all, which really lives, leaves us with the final life response I think that we are to have in light of it all, and that is that we're, we are to live wisely. That's what God wants us to do. And that means several things. It means that we are to be active in ministry. What are we supposed to be doing right now? If the stage is being set for the second coming of Christ and the end of the age, if we're getting near to it, what am I supposed to do? Well, we're to be active in ministry. We're to be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. It means that we give our time and our talent to serve God and to serve other people. That's living wisely. Living wisely means we're active in ministry. Living wisely means we invest in the kingdom of God. It means that what we've just gotten through going through in our Pass It On series is exactly what we need to be doing. Taking our treasure and investing it in the things of God, in the kingdom of God. So we are to live wisely, which means we're active in ministry. We invest in the kingdom of God. And then lastly, if we're going to live wisely, it means that we share the message of hope with people because the only hope anyone has in this life or the life to come is to have a relationship 
with Jesus Christ. So, let us live wisely. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the Bible. We thank you for the truth of the Bible. And we know there's a lot of detail here, Lord, but there's great, great perspective that we need to have. And Father, I would pray you would keep us away from extremes, from the extreme of going into panic to the extreme of just sort of casually sitting back thinking, oh well, to the extreme of getting entangled up into the things of the world and forgetting really where this world is headed. Lord, we thank you that you have given us so much data and so much information. We look forward to learning a little bit more about this, getting a little more perspective on prophecy in the weeks ahead. Thank you for what you're teaching us, and we would pray that we would keep our eyes on heaven, knowing that one day the doors of heaven are going to fly open and Jesus is going to be ready to come back. Thank you, Father, for teaching us and showing us these things, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.